Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 238 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by Lars Williams and Mark Emil Hermanson, the co-founders of Empirical, a company that makes category-defying spirits designed to evoke poignant memories and spur positive change. Mark and Lars are both alums of the legendary Copenhagen restaurant Noma, which has been capturing the imaginations of the world's most curious and refined diners since 2004. Honestly, going into this interview, I was expecting that we would spend a lot of time prying at and attempting to infiltrate the very layered and technical ways in which they build flavors in their wonderful and sometimes bizarre spirits. They do a lot of pressure-based distillation. They go through great pains to source the absolute best ingredients on Earth. And knowing that they carry with them highly sophisticated Michelin star technical knowledge, I was expecting that we would be kind of hanging out at the micro level with a bunch of molecules and lab equipment. And there was a little of that for sure. But what delights me most about this chat with the creators of Empirical is how focused they were, as Mark puts it, on using deliciousness as an argument for change and flavor as an engine for creating meaning. But before we talk about scaling flavors and increasing social and environmental impact, let's take just a brief pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is a riff on a post-prohibition but still classic drink called the 20th Century Cocktail. Basically, I had an idea for a drink using the Soka spirit that we taste in this episode, but I wanted to see if there was already a template out there for it. And there kinda is, so I took it and modified it for my purposes. The original 20th Century Cocktail was first published in Billy Tarling's Café Royal Cocktail Book in 1937 and created by British bartender C.A. Tuck in honor of the 20th Century Limited train that ran for decades between New York and Chicago. The original version contained gin, lillet, creme de cacao, and lemon juice. But taking a cue from some pointed advice, from Mark that we'll hear later on, I decided to dial down on the sweetness. So to make my version of this drink, which we'll just lazily call the 21st century cocktail, you'll need one and a half ounces of Soka Sorghum Spirit, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, three quarters of an ounce of Lille Blanc or a similar lightly sweet grapey aperitif, and a few dashes of our embitterment lavender bitters. Combine these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, give them a good hard shake, then double strain into a chilled stemmed cocktail glass, garnish with a lemon twist, and enjoy. Essentially, this is a simplified 20th century cocktail without the creme de cacao and with the soca in place of gin. And then finally, I opted for the lavender bitters as a finishing touch where the floral note plays well with the bouquet of verdant flavors in the soca. I liked that the creme de cacao 
was in the mix in the original version. I saw what it was doing there, but I knew that I needed something different to play that role in my updated version. Overall, if you do end up playing with the Soka, I have a feeling that you'll want to immediately experiment with it in your favorite gin, rum, and agave sour cocktails. And you absolutely should because it's fantastic. So be sure to tag us on Instagram at Modern Bar Cart with your creations, whether you decide to try this rendition or strike out on your own adventure. So now that you've got a few ideas for how to use this innovative new sorghum spirit, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this wide-ranging conversation with Lars Williams and Mark Emil Hermanson of Empirical, some of the topics we discuss include how Mark and Lars met and bonded while working at the world-renowned Nordic Food Lab at the Michelin star restaurant Noma, and then spun their passion and expertise into a project that bottles flavorful memories. Why Empirical is referred to as a flavor company as opposed to a distillery, rectifier, spirits purveyor, or any other typical moniker. The research and flavor building process that led to the development of their newest product, Soka, a spirit made using the fresh pressed juice of sorghum cane, which they're using as a way to spread the word about this regenerative nitrogen fixing crop. Why the density of flavor packed into these empirical spirits impacts the way that they can be used in cocktails, specifically where sweetness is concerned. How Lars and Mark think about scaling the impact of their partnerships with farmers, using their adventures in Oaxaca as a case study for creating spirits that not only capture the flavor of a place, but also find ways to give back to it. Along the way, we explore sensory pathways in the brain, the importance of a beginner's mindset, the socioeconomics of Pasilla Chiles, and much, much more. I came away from this conversation feeling different than I was expecting to. Instead of a nerd out session with a couple guys who run an awesome vacuum distillation rig, it was more of a heartfelt examination of how flavor makes people feel. Where you might normally expect a focus on production efficiency and market penetration, Lars and Mark choose to model wonderment for the natural world and a benevolent drive to improve the lives of others. There's a lot more to say about all that. But fortunately for us, the team at Empirical are doing a lot of the heavy lifting with the tenderly assembled flavor experiences that they bottle at the distillery. So I do hope you'll take a moment to pop by their website and check out the many unique products in their portfolio. Sign up for their mailing list so that you get you know early access to all of the fun projects that they're about to release. And until then, please enjoy this thought-provoking interview and tasting with Mark Emil Hermanson and Lars Williams, co-founders of empirical. Mark, Lars, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So this is something I've been looking forward to for a few months ever since I stumbled across your website. And I'm excited to dig into some of these flavors uh, because empirical is ostensibly a flavor company as your website would have me know. Uh, but first, could you just introduce yourselves to our listeners? Who are you and what do you do perhaps starting with Lars? Yeah, my name is Lars Williams, um, co-founder of empirical. I come from a chef's background, so I've been in the kitchen most of my life. Um, we began empirical five and a half years ago with the idea of kind of taking all that hard work and innovation, uh, blood, sweat, and tears that we've been putting into our industry in a culinary sense and applying that into something that would, could be 
more shareable, more democratic in a way, but still kind of pushing innovation forward. Mm, something bottleable. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, the story I like to tell is uh, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. We left our former employer at a moment where they were moving to a new location. It was a kind of a natural breaking point for us to let the next generation step in and kind of um, do their thing. So Mark and I were trying to figure out what we we're going to do with our lives. And uh, as I sometimes do, I was foraging to kind of clear my head uh, 45 minutes north of Copenhagen. It was a very crisp Danish morning in early spring, but it was like, you know, this beautiful Scandinavian forest and the, there's this beautiful smell of uh, pine just filling the air. And there's this kind of spongy emerald moss underground. And it was this moment that it was for me kind of encapsulated a lot about being in Scandinavia and particularly about being in nature. And I was like, Oh, I wish I could put this in a bottle and send it to my sister in Brooklyn. And in a lot of ways, that's how empirical was sort of born. Wonderful. That kind of uh, attempt to take a sense memory and make it into something that you can put into a bottle. Yeah. I think we'll talk a little bit about memory here as, as we go forward. But before we do that, Mark, can you please introduce yourself? Yes, I'm uh, Mark Emil. I'm a co-founder of Empirical. I am uh, actually born and raised here in Copenhagen. By the time I met Lars, I was just graduating uh, from studying anthropology in uh, England and uh, had uh, researched uh, food and identity and sort of expressing identity through how we eat and, and where that food comes from. And I shared my thesis to try and get a free restaurant at the restaurant Noma, where Lars was meeting up um, sort of the um, gastronomic research lab at that time. I did not get a free meal for quite a while, but I got a job with Lars my first day. I met him there, and I think that partnership has now lasted for more than, than 10 years, uh, frankly, um, or at least working on and off together on different projects. Um, what I got really fascinated by almost from day one was sort of exactly the vision last just uh, described, basically exploring the world through your palette. And I think in founding Empirical, uh, for me personally, was to see how can we take that and create almost the infrastructure around to make that vision come to life. That's why we started Empirical. Yeah. So I know that you must get a lot of questions about your time at Noma. So for maybe our listeners who may have vaguely heard of it or have never heard about it at all, can either of you just break down the importance of Noma, the role that it played in the culinary landscape in, say, you know, the past couple of decades, just so that we get a sense of what was going on there and why that was a fortuitous place for both of you to meet and begin thinking about flavor? Uh should I take this one? Yeah, I think you're taking <laughs> so, I was waiting for you. <laughs> Go ahead, please. I think Nomo was one of those like renovate uh, restaurants of a generation, which really kind of changed the way that people thought about food and kind of created a way of looking at food, which has had a far reaching kind of effect and impression on a lot of cooks around the world. I remember I was. Uh, El Bulli, which is another famous restaurant that had a huge amount of uh, impact on the culinary world, was closing. So it was the last season. And Renee got me a table for the one of the last services there. 
That's Rene Redzepi, chef and co-owner of Noma. According to his Wikipedia page, he had spent some time working at El Bulli back in 1999. And I had this amazing transcendent meal. And uh, I came back and I was, because Rene had uh, staged there for a season. And uh, I asked him, I was like, is there anything that you, like, what did you take away from being at El Bulli? And he thought for a second, and then he said, it really opened my mind to the fact that anything is possible. And I think that was like one of the, a big uh, lesson that I learned working at Empirical that we could, through hard work and dedication and being thoughtful about the way that we did things, could really achieve the impossible in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah, and that's something that we still strive to do in a lot of ways. But just in the general context, um, the way that Noma kind of approached food made it uh, a real thought leader in the space. Yeah. And as I understand, they also did quite a bit to push fermentation to the forefront of the culinary consciousness. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So Mark and I met at a facility called the Nordic Food Lab, which sort of was an offshoot from basically the Noma, Noma restaurant. And it was a, a nonprofit that they established to do these kind of like deeper research projects into what we call the pillars of cuisine or foundations of cuisine and kind of explore the possibilities and taking a lot of inspiration from different parts of the world and then applying that to the Landic, uh, Nordic landscape to see, you know, if we took global innovation and applied it to the things the time and place that we have in front of us, like what were the possibilities? And for me, um, in terms of leading that project, a lot of it was different fermentation techniques. So when Renee finally asked me to come back to the restaurant proper and head up the R&D kitchen at Noma, I brought a lot of these kind of fermentation techniques and it became like a real, I think a, a centerpiece of what we were doing and how we could add a lot of complexity and nuance into the food without it being this, you know, teeny little flowers and a lot of like kind of fancy or busy looking plating, but there was a huge amount of complexity and nuance kind of behind the scenes. I mean, when we first started, we got to, we, we had to, you know, things escalated quite quickly and there was a probably a few week window where we were going down to the table to present the dishes. And it was like, oh, this fermented sauce that's double fermented with this on top of a fermented beet that's fermented, lacto-fermented and fermented this and fermented that. And then we had to just realize we had to kind of step back the, back the vernacular as it became this kind of sort of a red line that connected a lot of the different things that we were doing. But it, that was also as we moved from almost purchasing anything and creating everything from scratch. And again, that's something that we've taken here to Empirical, where we start everything from scratch, from, you know, establishing really beautiful relationships with our farmers and our producers to be able to work with them, to get the best product, possible product in the field so that we can make something beautiful in the end. Um, to me, uh, coming from a chef's background, that's just the only logical way to do it. It's like if you, you wouldn't go to a, like a three-star Michelin restaurant and expect to get like a TV dinner with a little bit of tarragon on top. You, you expect them to have produced something special, right? Right, right. Well, I think we'll 
talk about the agricultural impact and the relationships that you're building with the people who are actually farming the raw inputs for these spirits as we consider the featured product for this interview. But before we do that, I want to continue pumping the brakes here and, and kind of get into this pool slowly. And uh, Mark, I'm, I'm wondering, since you are the sort of anthropologist person here, and since you've clearly done work with food and identity, if you might give us, for our purposes, a working definition of flavor, because what anybody will see if they, like I did, go on to the Empirical website is that Empirical, as I mentioned, is a flavor company, not a distillery, not a booze peddler, not a not a Michelin star restaurant, but a flavor company. So what does flavor mean for Empirical? So uh, I think a good way to illustrate it. So early, early on when Lars and I, um, when Lars, Lars and I first met, kind of two, two things came up uh, for me uh, personally, which I think sort of guides a little bit about how we, how we think about it collectively. Um, first of all, I'd been spending some, some time, uh, a lot of time in my earlier life uh, playing music, uh, playing classical music. So I was quite well educated in my, you know, in how I would listen to things. I had a stint with art history at, at one time. I felt like I had a pretty well-educated way of, of looking at things. Uh, but coming into the restaurant industry was really where I felt I discovered my my palate and my sense of smell for the first time. And basically how that enables you to open up for sense memories, for sense memories, for frankly creating those moments that makes you feel alive um, and always within the pursuit of deliciousness. So as Lars and I started to work together, uh, normally around fermentation, but also other things like uh, eating insects or coming up as Lars says with new pillars of cuisine. You know, the mission was for us to, in a sense, push the boundary of deliciousness. The crazy thing about deliciousness for me, it means that and the way food uh, can work is that it, it's almost an engine of creating meaning that can give you a time and find your time and place in the world at any given moment. So flavor is more an experience than than any uh, than any sort of um, physical trait, something like that. But the working the working hypothesis that we applied that I would would say we definitely still apply was that the, the delineation between the edible and inedible is deliciousness. And I think deliciousness is one of those. And, and Lars, feel free to sort of dig dig deeper into this. But for me, deliciousness is is um, is one of those experiences that creates meaning, whether that's abstract uh, with no reference point, whether it's something that gives you a, a sense memory, something pops up that you had forgotten about. It's basically flavor is a, an engine of meaning. Uh, it can be enjoyment, it can be disgust, but it's certainly something deeply, deeply meaningful embedded in that physical experience. Yeah, and to tag on to that, I mean, when we talk about flavor, we're talking about essentially the combination of taste, which is, you know, on our palate, which is ostensibly five different tastes, although I think we'll soon get to uh, the sixth sense of uh, fat, which they're kind of, the scientists are dithering about, but I'm pretty sure that uh, most cooks and certainly any dog will tell you exists. 
But the predominant part of that is aroma. And aroma is the only sense that we have that directly connects to the hippocampus without being gated by the thalamus, which means that it has a very direct access to memory in the way that your other senses can't have. And that allows us, when we're building a flavor, to create a narrative that kind of really draws on people's emotions. One of the first times I saw this in action was a dish that we had put together in the summer, I think, one year in Noma, and it was a mahogany clam, which is this very rare Nordic Arctic clam. And we dressed it with fermented green gooseberries and a bunch of like little strange Scandinavian herbs. And these are things that my mother had never had before in her entire life. But when she got the dish, she started kind of like crying a little bit because it immediately brought her back to being a kid on Rockaway Beach in Brooklyn. So that ability to give someone something completely novel, but have it yet pull these amazing sense memories from them is something that I think really you can only do or is the reason that I think flavor is such a compelling medium to be working in. So to that extent, you say we are a flavor company, but we, uh, we, we express our work through, through spirits, right? And I think that just for some context, of course, we come from, from gastronomy, but the experience of deliciousness is not something that is sort of, I would say, out of touch or is uh, in any way gated. And a big part of starting this company was to spread that to more than 40 people twice a day, right? There was a limitation to that, but it's certainly someone that I would say anyone can understand that experience and appreciate it. Yeah, it, it seems like the transition from gastronomy or working in, like you just mentioned, a 40-seat restaurant to one where you're working with equipment is an exercise in scale on multiple levels. And that's interesting to me. We, we may come back to that later because... Right now, I'd like to make sure that we don't uh, we don't bury the lead too far, and that we actually do start talking uh, about some of these spirits that you're making. And I want to make sure that our listeners understand the processes by which these liquids occur. You are almost definitely using slightly different equipment than most craft or industrial distillers here in the United States. Unfortunately, I did recently have a distiller on, Matt Power from Tamworth Distilling in New Hampshire, who is also creating spirits using a rotary evaporator. So our listeners who are dedicated fans of the show will definitely have at least a little bit of background in terms of the difference between pressure-based and heat-based distillation. But uh, certainly some of the stuff that you're doing with the fermentation side of things and definitely the, the way that you're empirically, we might say, uh, going about the research process for how you build the, and layer these flavors is going to be completely novel. So I'm, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to take this bottle of Soka which is sort of our featured star of this show. I'm going to pour myself a little sample so that it can breathe a little bit. And I'm wondering if maybe either one of you would take the lead in explaining how this goes from its base material to this beautiful, clear liquid in front of me. Yeah. So we, we, I, I'll just start off with a very quick preamble. So Creatively, we tend to work in three major um, lines. One is being inspired by just a raw product in itself. Um, that can be a botanical or a 
base for something. The second is like a technique. So being inspired by, let's say, Jamaican rum production. Or the third can be just a deep research dive into one aspect of what it is that we do. It could be, let's try fat washing every possible with every possible fat that we have, can get our hands on and see if that takes us anywhere. Or have we, uh, let's explore every seed variety that we can get our hands on and see if that takes us anywhere. In this case, we were just kind of had like an open-ended uh, research mandate for uh, different starch techniques that we could use for fermentation that we hadn't really been looking for. And um, Chris, our head of R&D, kind of stumbled across sorghum and specifically cane sorghum, which is a variety of, uh, so baiju is typically made of sorghum or some baijus are made of sorghum, but they're, it's typically the grain that they're using. And in, the, in North America, they're the variety of sorghum that they grow for cane, which is so that they're basically trying to maximize the sugar content that's in the cane. Um, and then it gets juiced in the same way that you would juice sugarcane. That was a major staple or the predominant sugar source in the, in the Americas, especially during the colonial kind of uh, wars where they didn't have a lot of access to the Caribbean. So he kind of stumbled upon this, what's essentially like a relic and is being produced only by like a handful of farmers at the moment, although we're, we're hoping that that will, we can inspire some change in that field. And so we got our hands on a barrel of sorghum syrup from uh, Mr. Danny Ray Townsend of Kentucky. And we did, we started playing around with it and got a place where we were very, very happy about the product. We thought we'd done something quite well. And sorghum was also kind of clicking a lot of boxes for us that are important to us as a company that is using a, a sustainable uh, crop, one that is actually regenerative or, you know, puts nitrogen and energy back into the field. Here in Europe, they often use it either as a rotational crop where they're not actually using the sorghum for anything, but they're just planting it as a way of putting more nitrogen back in the soil without using fertilizers or as a cover crop. And it's also drought resistant and used to working or growing well in relatively poor soils. And I think as we look at the climate kind of changing around us, like this crop started to make more and more sense on, for us on the ethical level. And it's tasted really beautiful. So it's a, a very nice synergy right there. However, the first production cycle that we went to, I went to a do in, in North America, I tasted the actual fresh corn uh, cane juice for the first time. And our very carefully laid plans went completely sideways because I was like, this is the most amazing thing I ever tasted. We're 100% using this. So the scope of how we make soca changed kind of like in that first production run. So what we do is we take the sorghum juice, which is this bright green, reminiscent of sugarcane juice, but has a much more kind of green apple, sorrel, uh, fresh cut grass kind of feel to it. We ferment that with a Thai uh, rice wine yeast. And then we distill it uh, in a vacuum still. We then, but we keep the, what's now non-alcoholic juice that's post-ferment. And we then do a secondary fermentation on it, kind of inspired by the dunder pits of Jamaican rum production to get a little bit more funk, a little bit more earthiness, but still kind of keeping that sorghum flavor. And we use that as a strike water for our sorghum syrup. That is basically let the syrup down to a, a lower amount of sugar level so we can actually ferment it. So we're basically taking this dense 
sorghum product and then just shoving more and more sorghum into it until we can ferment it. We then distill that and then we marry those two different distillation fractions together. For wow. So that that's more complicated than I was than I was even expecting it to be. Uh, <laughs> but but it, it, it well, all I mean, makes in sense. For us, that's actually a relatively simple <laughs> spirit. <laughs> but uh, that's right. We uh, well, I guess we can't uh, help ourselves when we see the possibilities. Well. Uh, just to give a little bit of a sensory impression here, it's it's so funny as you were as you were mentioning sorrel, I was like, wow, I've only had that maybe a few times in my life, but funnily enough, that it, right on the nose, it's it's green, but it's also it, it 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 hits that it hits that aromatic note that's somewhere between a mentholated note and like a green apple or lime zest note there's some there's some space in between those two on the aroma wheel that this is sliding right into which is really really neat yeah it's the the rice wine yeast this you know i was i was i was nosing nosing and you know even if you are to nose and taste a relatively low quality rice spirit like you know some of the some of the cheaper rice whiskeys that might be served at a dive bar with a tall boy can of of you know chinese beer or something like that you get that note that's very distinctly rice so it's interesting as i hear you describe the density of the sorghum and the amount of sorghumness for lack of a better term that you're putting into this it's it's still nice to be able to pull out that one note and maybe you can just confirm or refute this i might be wrong but it seems like some of the craft and some of the some of the joy and the the meaning of this product is being able to do that being able to still sense the rice through the sorghum or the rice yeast i should say yeah, well, I mean, that's interesting for because for me, like, I feel like it really touches on like the landscape, which is these kind of like plain fields uh, where the sorghum's kind of grown. So you have these big open, it's like big open farm country and you have this like these kind of rolling fields of just farmland. And for me, like it really has that kind of that sense of farmland in a way, not like what we talk about farmhouse tastes in like beers or something like that, but like the actual landscape of farmland. Yeah. It's very green. It's, um, it doesn't have that sense of fresh cut grass and it doesn't have that sense of what a lot of people might call petrichor, which is the, the aroma after a rain, but it, it very much does have the aroma of like rubbing up against something that is green and growing, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Perfect. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're a regular listener of the Modern Bar Cart podcast, you've heard me talk about Near Country quite a bit over the last year. And I have another exciting announcement. They've got cheese, guys. Not only do Adam and his team work with a bunch of awesome local farmers and fishermen here in the Mid-Atlantic to provide you with sustainably raised and delicious proteins, 
but they've upped the ante yet again, and they now offer delicious cheeses, cow's milk and sheep's milk cheeses that you can subscribe to on a monthly basis, or you can just go ahead and add them to your cart as an add-on at any point. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. Becoming a Near Country Provisions subscriber is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. You mentioned that you're deeply concerned with working with farmers. And Mark, when you and I were chatting just before we started recording, you mentioned that there's this epic heat wave occurring in Copenhagen right now. Um, so maybe maybe we're a little bit more in touch with some of the the impacts of climate change in this very moment as we're recording this than we might otherwise be. But can can you talk about the the project of of working with these farmers and and I don't know if I, I also have the, the IU here. Um, it seems like there's a, also a really interesting story with that product with how you as a company approach partnering with people who kind of produce these things at the agricultural level. I mean we we're able to find a really perfect uh, partner in a, in a farmer who's only one hour away from where we do the distillation. So it allows us to basically, and he has, um, he's basically devised this incredible Mad Max looking machine, which is essentially three separate combines that he's welded together. And it cuts the cane, chops into shorter pieces, and then runs it through a uh, rolling press that he had he designed himself and had built, which is uh, powered by the motor off of a cement truck, and then basically juices into a tank that's being pulled behind the combine. And then when the tank is full, he literally unhitches it from the combine, hitches it to his truck, and we have it in the fermenters in an hour. So that proximity has been amazing for us in terms of just getting the best possible product. However, in this production cycle, which I'm going down, uh, well, yeah, I'll be there in a month hanging out with uh, Rich and Brenda, who are farmers in, uh, in Wisconsin. They, um, we're going to ferment some of the juice in Wisconsin, and then we're going to send it to another collaborator partner that we have in California. And that was actually something that he asked about because a lot of the people that he know in the California area can no longer grow their full fields because they literally don't have access to water. They can only get enough water to be planting on half of their fields. So they're actually looking for drought resistant crops. And so he was like, let's do a cycle of production in California, kind of show the farmers that there is this market for this product. You kind of have to show that there is a reason for them to be growing the, this sorghum before you can kind of convince them to plant half a field of it. Right. And, we can do if we can do that, then we can have what we think is really useful for. I mean, to have so to kind of inspire people who are have the use and need of drought resistant crops would be super super powerful. And it's, I think it's something that we 
really hope for in terms of the impact of Soka is to kind of inspire people to be doing that similar kind of farming. And we're starting off and trying to inspire people in California, but we also have good friends in Zimbabwe who I think that we're also going to be hopefully collaborating with in the future. They could also be growing sorghum and making their own sorghum spirit. So I think we're trying to kind of create this niche for a sorghum-based spirit and then see if we can, you know, kind of start thinking about what the future of agriculture for spirits looks like. Hmm. We find ourselves in a very resource-intensive industry, right? And since we don't put our spirits in a, in a set category, it's not a gin, it's not a whiskey, it's, uh, it's empirical. Um, I think it's, it's just fascinating for us uh, to have these tools to create delicious, delicious ingredients, delicious booze, and use deliciousness as the, as the argument for change, right? So it's almost like you take deliciousness and, and apply them to these uh, either undervalued crops, uh, undervalued ingredients, or more resilient crops. And I think that's the flexibility we, we sort of realized we had built into this freeform way of doing things that we were, were slowly building towards. Uh, the project in, in Oaxaca uh, for Ayuk is quite similar. And a lot of this is, like last described, the um, how Soka came about. is really just going deep on the research, traveling, and then um, the way um, I'll, I'll have him tell it in his own words in a second. But it really just started with a trip to Mexico and going to a market, right, Lars? Yeah. My wife, who's a sculptor, is doing an art residency down in Oaxaca. And I, she was down there for a month. And so I said, well, let me go take the weekend off and spend a couple of days and me being me, the most romantic thing I could think of was to take her to the food market and spend the day walking around looking at all the amazing stalls. And I came across this beautiful chili that I'd never had like in the landscape where it came from, which is this Basia Mije chili from Oaxaca. And I tasted it and I smelled it and immediately went and bought two suitcases and smuggled 70 pounds of it back to Copenhagen. And then we developed kind of like a beta version of what's now called Ayuk. And then we, you know, we needed hundreds of kilos of it. And we went through a lot of different samples and tests and importers and exporters. And so finally, um, the gentleman who does procurement at Empirical got tired of me yelling at him and telling him he was doing a bad job and said, would you please go back to Oaxaca and figure out where the hell you got these chilies from? <laughs> um, so... We found an academic that had worked with the Mihe people and the, the farmers up in the Sierra Norte mountains and drove up to the, the first village that was closest to Oaxaca. And it's a it's about a four-hour drive outside of Oaxaca. And of probably the thousand or so people that had been farming this chili 50 years ago, there was 12 still doing it. And that's just because the economics of growing that chili had become so bad. The chili grows exceptionally well at these high altitudes, so 7,000 feet up, but it's too cold to get the seeds to grow at that altitude. So they walk down the mountain two hours, plant the seeds, and then when the seeds are about seven inches high or so, they walk back down the mountain again, pick up about 80 pounds of little seedlings or so, and walk up the mountain with them. And then they'd go up and down the mountain, carrying the entire field of seedlings for between a week to 10 days. And then the fields that they're planting, because they are in the mountains, are at like a 35 degree angle. So there's always too little water at the top of the field, always too much water at the bottom. And, there's, and because these are people that can not really even afford like the most basic tools of farming 
they certainly can't afford pesticides or fertilizers for their field. So there's a lot of problems with insects and uh, a lot of loss of products in the course of the agriculture. So at the end of six months, when they've spent a lot of time and a lot of money kind of investing in their agriculture, they're completely broke. And some guy comes by with a truck and offers them pesos on the dollar for their hard work. And so a lot of the fields, a lot of people in this first village had turned to making traditional garments and bags and things like that. For me, it was, I know coming a bit naive saying this, but like it was really shocking and like a something we felt there was something that we had to do almost like as an imperative to kind of keep this really, really beautiful flavor alive. So the first year we continued up and the second village is only accessible by four by four up this treacherous mountain road, which really scared the living daylights out of my poor wife. But in that, in that second community, we found another about 20 or so farmers. And so the first year we helped them form like this loose co-op and bought their entire crop sight unseen and paid them 30% upfront. So they would have enough money to carry through to the end of the harvest. This past year, we're up to 73 individual farms and we've brought down well, just before the pandemic, we brought down agronomists from Mexico City to teach them biodynamic techniques in terms of fertilizing and pesticides so they can not have to, well, they can improve their crop and their yield, but also not have to invest a huge amount of money in chemicals, which also puts them in the hole economically before the crop, you know, you have to, they have to pay a lot of money to even start the production so they can avoid that. And uh, yeah, we're helping them kind of hope, hopefully form business that outpaces us at some point, um, because I think we're trying to just highlight, and I think the spirit is mostly just about the flavor of this chili. It's a, just a single botanical spirit, but it's also something that I think we highlights, I think, where Mark and I overlap the most. We often joke that if you look at the Venn diagram of our skill sets, it's two separate circles, but or very morally and ethically aligned. And this is an example of empirical, just we always feel that empirical should leave things better than they, we find it. And that any interaction that we have with the world should be a benefit, beneficial one to everyone involved. I really like what you said, Mark, about deliciousness being an argument for change. Uh, I think that is perhaps the most concise way of describing what we've just spent the past 30 or 40 minutes discussing. It's a huge privilege, I think, to be able to spend time studying anthropology and music and art history. It's a huge privilege to be able to work in a kitchen and have resources to dive down every fermentation rabbit hole that your brain desires and, and you know just having the space to work and play in this highly what many would consider esoteric space but then to take that background to team up together and then to bring all of that privilege into a place where it's actually generating something useful and continuing to do that at greater, greater scale, greater and greater scale as the years tick by seems really exciting to me. So I'm really glad that you were able to share both of those kind of case studies 
certainly at the agricultural level, because a lot of the stuff that I talk about on this show is lovely in the glass, just like your spirits are lovely in the glass. But it seems like with empirical, there's a different type of loveliness about it, knowing the stories behind it. So for what it's worth, I, I think it's it's really wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. I think, um, you know, you, you mentioned the word esoteric a few times, and, and I, I don't disagree, uh, or at least it's it's fairly complex. And sometimes it uh, until you get it in that class seems unnecessarily complex. But this is why we started the, the company, right? And I want to just illustrate it by the point of saying, you know, sometimes people walk in and say, you know, they see all the pictures of the equipment or they're getting a tour at the distillery. They're like, what's the most important piece of equipment here? And and the answer would usually be, well, it's the glass or it's the spoon, right? Um, because if it doesn't taste good, uh, we scrap it. So all of it is just a long way. That's right. That golden spoon in your back pocket box. Um <laughs> All of this is very complicated, but at the end of the day, we have to judge it with our senses without that backstory, right? I think calling it a flavor company is a little bit, I would say, tongue-in-cheek because it sounds like we're an international flavor house, right, of, of artificial flavors. But but it's also sort of trying to illustrate how we would like things to be. And a lot of a lot of that work that uh, that we do, or all of that work, is also something that we instinctively feel should be implicit in any great product, right? It's showing that love and care. Uh, that we think every product should be treated with, and certainly, certainly, customers who are willing to give that a try and uh, and hopefully appreciate the product, we do our very utmost in order to make sure we put all that work in. Um, yeah, make it worth it. Yeah, it, it, you know, sometimes I, I've I've done a little bit of restaurant work, certainly not to not to the level that that uh, that you gentlemen have, but uh, one one joke that we would always have at this little. Um, sort of tourist town sandwich shop that I worked at by the, by the ocean, um, was, you know, the, everything, everything was made with love and it absolutely was not being made with love in, in that moment. We were just, you know, we were catering to tourists. We were not doing anything that was exciting with flavor. You know, the prep work was very ungratifying and didn't require any skill or craft. And so we, we, we kind of threw it out there, you know, when, when the servers were asking what was in something, we'd say, we just say love and it would t totally <laughs> not be the case. When I, when I think about something made with love, I think about, you know, someone who's been practicing a craft for, you know, decades and decades, a grandmother sweating over a pot on the stove that's been simmering for, you know, two, three, four days with, you know, this, this one thing that she's known for in her family or in her, in her community. But when it, when you guys talk about the, I guess the love that you're putting into this, it's almost love on a, the, the scale or the ability of the products to scale and the love and the value seem to be connected. And generally when you think about people talking about scaling a company, it gets really cold and really sterile and balance sheets come out and there couldn't be less love in the room. It's just people trying to screw each other over to, to, to make a margin. <laughs> but here it seems like the love and the scale are tied. And 
So I guess for me, that's the real discovery of this conversation. It's the real delight that I've gotten. Obviously, the spirits themselves are delightful. I'd love to hear you maybe speak just about how bartenders have been using these to create amazing cocktails before we wrap up here. But uh, to me, I just wanted to get on the table that the real discovery is that love and scale can somehow be connected. And I think that's the whole hypothesis of the company is that those two can coexist, right? It's the very, very hard. It's also the very fun part of what we do is to make sure that those things can happen and coexist and not be victim to any sort of prejudice around that not being the case. I think if anything, that's what we want to prove. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of that is about the team that we've been very lucky to build and the hard work that those guys put in every day. Not accepting the status quo of their own work and just constantly trying to improve and innovate and do whatever they can to make their day and their work better. Um, so I think it's something we we really tried to shape when Mark and I started this company, but it's you know something that the, our team is carrying forward. The uh, And with the unfair advantage of being able to approach it with a beginner's mind, we uh, we kind of came in and, and did a lot of learning by doing, and this the same is true for a large part of the large part of the team. You're not the first people who are doing things at a highly technical level that have emphasized the importance of that beginner's mind. And just to kind of switch gears a little bit here, one of the places where I'm excited to exercise a little bit of that beginner's mind is in trying to figure out how to apply these spirits to the cocktail format, because obviously you're not encountering too many single botanical chili distillates from, you know, a rare type of pasilla chili on the market. You're not necessarily encountering, you know, grassy verdant sorghum spirits every day on the shelf. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you might maybe give me a couple of threads that I might follow based on some of the things that you've seen other folks do with uh, the certainly the Soka and uh, you know perhaps the Ayuk as well since we have already mentioned that I think when when we when we start when we started up when we started out and people said people said so how do I use it we we're like we we don't know you're you know you're the bartender you t- you tell us how to use it and I think that that also gave us a bit of time and having the patience to have us co-create a little bit and kind of going to these very, very acclaimed places and seeing how they put it to life in a way that wasn't necessarily in, in any way, shape or form what you would usually expect that bar to have, which delighted, you know, the bartenders and would ultimately delight the customer. I think what we've discovered on a lot of trial and error, uh, fortunately, is that um, you can make even your favorite drink empirical. It's fairly easy to replace a gin or a mezcal or a whiskey with, uh, with, with our products. It's a very smooth uh, product it's quite aromatic it's quite versatile Um, it'll usually in my opinion mean that you don't have to add a lot of uh, sweetness to any cocktail uh, simply by virtue of the smoothness and and uh, and sort of how much flavor is packed there so you kind of trade sweetness for complexity which i think is ultimately a great thing yeah, they're very dense in terms of the 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 amount of flavor in a (laughs) what we might call a cubic unit of flavor in in this glass is certainly much more dense than you would typically experience. So I, I think that that's really smart in saying, hey, well, all right, maybe, maybe you can dial down the sweetness because there's so much else going on here. So that's certainly something that I'll play around with as I explore 
some of these awesome samples that you sent my way. But as we kind of wrap up here, I'm I'm curious about what the future looks like for Empirical in general and for you gentlemen in particular. Are, are there any projects you're excited about? Are there any updates that you'd like to share with our listeners? Anything at all that, that you feel is really exciting and that you want to share? There's a lot of things to share. I'm just trying to make a pick. I mean, there's under, you know, it's been very important for us recently to ensure that we could have the supply ready because we, we have always been behind uh, on that supply. We're starting to see a very rapidly growing distribution footprint. And that's a very, very exciting thing for us uh, to make sure that simply not something new. The new thing is that it's simply going to be available more places and more of it. And that's pretty new to us. So that's very big news. I would say another new thing is that we're starting to to really double down on our our you know small batch limited SKUs that we make out here in Copenhagen. Some of the barrel age stuff that we've been working on for a few years that we're going to release later this year in time for the holidays, and even more specialized weird things um, and delicious things that uh, that basically last as an entire catalog sitting uh, that we've just been waiting to release. So we try and do. Those two things at the same time, scaling uh, these these products that we have now figured out how to make a lot of in the right way, and at the same time really digging deep into sort of what represents the the vision of what we do, and often products that are uh, sort of or, or just definitely entirely not scalable. Yeah, we always we we very seriously and sincerely shook hands at the beginning of the year, saying that we were only going to do only going to release for. Uh, like limited batch things this year so that we weren't kind of causing chaos on the commercial side of the business or confusing the customers. We're already at eight, so we're completely <laughs> failing in our in our promises to ourselves. But yeah, we're, we're definitely trying to make those more available. Another quick little interjection from the clouds here, just to give an example of what these limited release products look like, we've got the excess and debauchery spirit currently listed on their website. This is a malt whiskey style spirit, but it's infused with smoked Jerusalem artichoke leaves with the smoke being derived from an Oloroso sherry barrel that they were retiring. And the whole project is kind of couched as an experiment in different tea making techniques. So just wanted to give you a little taste of what these smaller run products look like. Now, Back to Lars. And then we have a new release that's going to be a bigger part, part of our portfolio um, coming out in September, which we're very excited about. I think we often talk about recreating sense memories. So a uke for me is like really like the my sense memory of being in Oaxaca and like kind of like trying to encapsulate that red line of flavor, flavor that for me is Oaxaca. The upcoming spirit that we have is the first time we tried to kind of create a memory from scratch in a sense. So we're creating like a forgotten memory that's coming in the fall. Man, that sounds incredibly trippy. I mean, that's, uh, man, I saw the opportunity to dive down the the neuroscience and the, you know, sort of proust uh mm-hmm. line of, of discussion here and intentionally avoided that because it would have completely <laughs> sidetracked us. But uh, I'm, I'm so deeply excited by what you're talking about with the new release. So yeah, we, hopefully we will 
be able to keep an eye on your social media and share those releases out with our listeners and our, our followers once they become public. But uh, until then, it sounds like the, the through line here is that we're going to start seeing empirical bottles on more shelves. So more of our listeners will right. hopefully very soon be able to, uh, to access them. So uh, definitely keep your eyes out for that. We'll usually do a, we'll usually do kind of like an early early release uh, for the for the connoisseurs. We'll usually only push those and even some products only via our newsletter, um, which is sort of a, a special community we're building there. Also, sharing more about the techniques, how to create the techniques, and and um, and that's really I think something where we try and provide the hospitality that we that we come from is is really via building that that. Um, that community. So if you, if you want to get ahead uh, on some of those things and, and be in touch, that's always via that newsletter. Just a bit of a little uh, commercial uh, break here. Excellent. Yeah. So we, we will be certain to link to your website over on the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll have links obviously to all the different spirits that, that we've been discussing. Uh, is there anything else Mark, Lars, that uh, you want to make sure you share with our listeners before we sign off here. Oh, try something new today. Try something new. You should try, yeah, try something new and yeah. I think, okay, I'll do that. Try something new. <laughs> well, <laughs> gentlemen, uh, I've had a tremendous time talking with you. Uh, you've certainly given me a lot to think about. And I came in expecting to think about weird fermentation techniques and lots of, you know, roto style things. And it turns out that I've, I've got a, a whole different type of, of kind of set of things to think about having had the conversation. So thank you for making this a, a fun sort of delightful conversation full of discovery for me. And thank you more importantly for being my guests right here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Thank you very much. Been our Thanks for having us. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here. And by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. 
This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. Flavor and impact insights, courtesy of Lars Williams and Mark Emil Hermanson of Empirical. And a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.